Let's pray. Father, who am I and what are my people that we are able to thus willingly offer you anything because all that we have is yours? Our heart, our mind, our prayers, our time, our families, our children, our husbands and wives, our Bibles, our church, our jobs, our food, our homes, our cars, our money, our clothes, our beds, the sun that warms us and the rain that cools us, all of it is yours. And only by your grace do we get to taste any of it. And who are we to exalt ourselves or exalt others for what you have given? Who am I to say that these words are mine when you have given them? Move me out of the way. Make Jesus look beautiful and glorious and magnificent and powerful and almighty as a Savior, as our God, as our King, as our Lord, as our Messiah, as our Comforter, as our peace, as our glory, as our love, as our grace, make Jesus look magnificent. Exalt Christ. Magnify your gospel. God, be glorified as we lay all that we have and we lay all that we are at your feet in humble submission that we exist solely for your glory. And as we do that, God, fill us with the endless joy and pleasure of your presence in your Holy Spirit. We ask this only because you cause us to ask this. We love you, Lord. Make much of yourself this morning. Let your words speak. We pray this in the only name that saves, the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, Amen. In Colossians chapter 2, we get, when we got to verse 16, Paul starts to deal with heresies that were happening in the church. Before that, he kind of addressed some heretical false teachings that are going on, and, and his solution was in Chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where the answer is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. The answer to false teaching is Jesus. Because all false gospels, all false, all false teachings, all heresies make an, an idol out of some other thing. Make some sort of false god out of something else. And what Paul preaches in chapter 1 is that Christ is the only God, that Jesus is the one, that he created all things for himself, through himself, and to himself, that he is the head of the church, which is his body, that he purchased the church by his blood, 
and that he is fully God, that the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. Christ is God. Christ is the gospel. Jesus is the answer. He is the solution. He is the rebuttal to false teaching. And then Paul's conclusion from that is, so walk in him. So live in him. As you've received Christ, live like it. And so there's this command for obedience. And then as we get to verse 16 in chapter 2, Paul starts to deal with some different or maybe more specific elements of the heresies that were happening in the church. Verses 16 and 17, he deals with the legalistic Judaism that was invading Colossae. And then verses 18 and 19, he deals with the mysticism that was invading the church. We talked about that last week. And now in verses 20 through 23, Paul deals with what is called asceticism. Now, one word would define asceticism, and that word would be prohibition. Like prohibiting you from doing certain things. Asceticism is this idea, and, and the way I described it last week, I don't even remember describing it this way last week, and Christian said, oh, I like that description, so I was like, I'll bring it back in. It is spiritual self-mutilation is what asceticism is. It is a it, it looks like humility. It's not humility. It's a false humility. It's this idea that I cannot have anything. All physical things are bad and evil, and I can't have anything. I can't eat this. I can't own that. I can't possess this. I must mutilate myself almost physically, but also more primarily spiritually. I must deprive myself of everything, even good things. Because as I deprive myself, I will be living out the nature of what I deserve. I am wretched, and so the only answer to wretchedness is humility. So I deserve nothing, so I should get nothing. The problem with that is that's half the gospel. You do deserve nothing. <laughs> you are wretched. You should get nothing. We should die. We deserve hell. We don't deserve food at our next meal. You don't deserve a breath. You don't deserve that next breath. We don't deserve the word of God. We don't deserve a church full of people who love us. We don't deserve all these good things we have in life. That's part of the gospel. But if that's the only part of the gospel that's said, then it's a false gospel. Because the true gospel says God is good. And the gospel, the good news, which is the gospel, is that you get God because God is the gospel. You get the gospel, which means you get God. That's the good news. You get God, and God is good. And so God showers us with goodness. John 10, 10. God, Jesus said, I came to give life and to give it abundantly. That's eternal life. But the process of getting to that eternal life of abundance begins now. We get a ton of good things from God. Is God's grace good? Yeah. Is his love good? Yes. Are his blessings good? Yes. When he brings suffering into our life to refine us into Christ's likeness, would we call that good? Yes, we should, because it is good, because it's discipline which makes us like Christ. God gives us nothing but good. Romans 8, he does this for the good of those who love him. To reject good from God is to reject God because God is good. So asceticism is a false gospel. And it was invading the church with this false humility. 
And then Paul addresses it in verses 20 through 22. And he says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit again to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Paul's argument against asceticism and ultimately his argument against any form of sin of any kind of, or any kind of sin is dependent on the truth that he's teaching here in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? The essence of what Paul is teaching is that we are dead to the world and alive to Christ. So when I say dead to the world, he's talking about we're dead to sin because the sin is identified or the world is identified as a sinful place that is consumed and permeated with sin. The world is not redeemed. God's chosen loved ones are redeemed. But the world is not redeemed yet. So now it exists in sin. It is the face of sin in scripture as the Bible Usually as it speaks of the world, it's referring to the world that is filled with sin and everyone who's in it who's filled with sin and everything in it is inundated with sin. Sin reaches every nook and cranny of the universe. It reaches every crevice of your soul and mind and heart and life and thoughts and experiences. It is in everything. Everything decays and everything dies because sin is everywhere. And so the world is sin. And the only thing in the world that doesn't have sin is you. Because of Christ. Now, I just said you don't have sin. But in your experience, you have sin, right? Still, today, right? You probably sinned this morning. Oh, I heard some groans. Were those bad ones? Or... <laughs> Someone yelled at their kids before church. So, just kidding. <laughs> uh, we know that we still have this sinful nature. But in Christ, positionally, you are without sin. But experientially, now today, right? This is that already but not yet we've been talking about. Already you are without sin, but not yet have you been fully sanctified to perfection. And so we live this life in, in a sanctif- we live this life in sanctification it, as spiritual growth, as the Holy Spirit creates more Christ-likeness in us, as He disciplines us and refines us through trials and suffering and, and through the word and through prayer and through hardships and through situations and all kinds of circumstances. As he refines us to be more like Christ, we go through that sanctifying process as he starts to push sin out of us. The sin that he pushes out of us, it can only be pushed out of us because it's already been murdered. It's already been killed. It's already been paid for. It's already been buried. So we are the only Things that exist in earth, on earth that, are, that, that can and are free from sin. But the world is full of it. And God hates sin. Being in Christ 
means being alive in righteousness, and righteousness cannot exist where sin rules. So because of Christ and being in Christ, we are dead to sin, or, or sin in us is dead. The only reason we act in sin while we are also in Christ is because we decided to pick up that which is dead in us and bring it back to life for a moment. And it grieves God because he has so much, so much more for you, something so much better than that. How many of you have ever sinned and walked away from like, I'm really glad I did that. That felt great. Like that doesn't happen Every time, I don't know about you, but when I sin and I'm done sinning or it just happened, I'm immediately like, ugh, Mark. I don't feel great about it. It grieves me. It grieves the Holy Spirit in me. That's why I feel that way. That's conviction. Sin doesn't bring you joy. It brings you misery. It brings you shame and disgust. And what the gospel says is when you sin... Instead of shame, instead of feeling disgust, instead of being miserable, instead of hating yourself, the whole point of why I even, God says, the whole point of why I even allow you to continue to exist in Christ but have a sinful nature that still finds its way out of you is so that when you sin, you would recognize your absolute need and dependence on me so that you would look to me and find that my gospel has satisfied that problem. That my gospel, that my son Jesus Christ has paid for that sin so that you wouldn't bow down on your face in misery, but that you would bow down on your face in joy and submission to the truth that that sin has been paid for. You don't have to live in it anymore. And by the power of Christ and by the grace of God and through faith in Christ, we can get up off the ground and by his grace, we can, we can live and move forward without that sin. You have that power in Christ but only in Christ. The world doesn't have that. The world is inundated and permeated by sin. And we are dead to the world. And that's Paul's point. We're dead to the world. We're dead to sin. Look at this in Colossians 3.3, which uh, I, Christian may or may not cover next week. Um, I don't know how many verses he's doing, but we'll get to this in the next week or two. Colossians 3.3. For you have died... That's you, that's the old self, the old you, you're dead. And your life, that's your new life in Christ, is hidden with Christ in God. And there are other scriptures in the New Testament that attest to this truth. Romans 6, 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Verse 11, so you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is getting at here is God's hatred for sin. Now this word in in Colossians 2.20, these words, elemental spirits of the world, he says, what Paul is telling us is, in Christ, You have died to the elemental spirits of the world. And this elemental spirits of the world refers to, essentially, the worldly religious systems. The entire world is filled with religion. Every single human on this earth is religious. Every one of them. If they're agnostic and they say, I believe in nothing. I believe that no one can know anything and nothing matters and 
That's a religion. That's a belief system. And all other world, world religions, such as asceticism, are all predicated on rules and regulations. Every belief system that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ or the word of God is predicated on rules and regulations. How do we know that Christianity is the only true religion? How do we know that what we believe is the truth? How do we know that Buddhism isn't right? How do we know that Mormonism isn't right? How do we know that atheists aren't right? How do we know that Christianity is the only true belief? Christianity is the only belief system, the only truth that has grace. All other world religions require sacrifice and obedience and martyrdom for some form of salvation. Only Jesus freely offers grace. All other religions or beliefs require that you die for your God. Even the ones that don't explicitly say you have to die for your God, the only logical and reasonable conclusion of what their belief system is is that the only way to get there is through absolute obedience to a certain amount of rules and regulations, which does have to logically conclude in you dying for this God. Christianity says that God dies for you. That's the difference, because that is grace. And only Jesus offers it. And since all other religions are worldly and humanistic, God hates them and he hates the sin from which they came. And to not believe the gospel is to believe some form of some other worldly belief system. Even to claim that you believe in nothing. I believe in nothing. That's secular humanism. Because who's the God of nothing? Me. Self. The God of nothing is self. Because I've never met anybody who believes in nothing and doesn't eat and doesn't satisfy themselves and doesn't drink water and doesn't care for themselves. They have no God, but they take care of themselves better than anybody else. They are their own God. It's called naturalism and it's a false religion and it's a heresy. And all these false beliefs that exist in the world is what Paul is referring to when he says elemental spirits of the world. We have died to those things. We don't exist with those things. We don't believe in those things. Those are the product of sin. And the world and everything in it is a product of sin. We are out of that. We have died to the world. And all these worldly beliefs are sin and the world loves them because the world loves sin. But God hates sin and we love God so we should hate sin too. Now, if that is true, then why, why would we follow the ways of the world? Or as Paul asks it, why would we sub follow or submit to human regulations, precepts, and teachings? So Paul gives us an example of what the Colossians were being tempted with regarding these human regulations, precepts, and teachings. And he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. That's what the ascetics were saying. You can't have that, you can't have that, you can't have that. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Ultimately, that's what the Judaistic legalism was teaching too. Prohibition, prohibition, prohibition. Can't have, can't have, can't have. Don't, don't, don't. Go without. 
These regulations are strictly prohibitions. It's how you talk to children, right? That's how we treat small children. We do that because small children lack a certain ability to reason, right? And because your one-year-old, because you can't reason with your one-year-old, you just give them a rule and you make them obey that rule. You say, don't touch. And when they touch it, you grab their little hand, you go, okay? (laughs) Parenting advice 101. Slap your child's hand when they disobey. I mean it. (laughs) I mean, not hard, you know, they're a baby. But enough that they get the message. Without the ability to reason... We have to create prohibitions, rules, laws, and we just follow them, and we don't give reason or explanation. And as that child grows, and they start to develop reason and understanding and knowledge and awareness of the world around them, we start to communicate to them why we do what we do. Why Now now that they're five or six-year-olds, you say, don't touch that, because if you touch that, it might hurt you. And if you get hurt, you'll be sad. And then I'll be sad that you're hurt, and we'll both be sad together. So don't touch that. And you start to give them a little more reason. And as they get older and older, you start to say, now you can't think that way or do that thing because that doesn't honor God or satisfy the Lord. And you won't be satisfied in that in the long run. And you start to reason with your children because they have matured out of infancy and and they start to mature into adulthood. And so we start to expand our reasoning. But asceticism lacks reason. The, the entire system of asceticism lacks reason, and so the ascetics don't have reason for why they can't do what they do, so they just make prohibitions. Don't, don't, don't. And that is the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of God's word as it opposes asceticism. It makes sense. God's word makes sense. It's reasonable. The Bible doesn't just give us rules and commands. It explains to us why these rules exist. I'll give you an example. First Thessalonians chapter 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality. Now that's the prohibition. Abstain from sexual morality. He could just end there and be like, just do it, because I said so, just do it. But instead, in verse 4, he goes on and says, this is the reason. Why should you abstain from sexual immorality? That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. God gives reason. He helps us understand. The ascetics offer only rules without reason and thus oppose the gospel because the gospel is fully predicated on understanding and it it, it requires the knowledge of God and the reasonability and logic of, of God that he expresses about himself and through his word in all of our reality. But the real heart, the, the real heartache, the real problem with this heresy of asceticism is that this prohibition, just this line of rules and regulations of don't do this and don't have that and go without and spiritually self-mutilate and deprive yourself of everything good. The real problem with that is that prohibition offers nothing to the new creation in Christ. What is our purpose when we receive Christ? It is to grow in Christ's likeness, spiritual maturity, sanctification. That's what we are living in right now. Prohibition 
doesn't create sanctification. The new man, the new person that we become in Christ is free. Not a man chained to rules and regulations like the Jewish legalists. Not a man wildly free to do whatever he wants with no rules and regulations like the mystics. And not people so stuck to rules and regulations that they can't have anything good like the ascetics. The new person in Christ is free from sin and alive in Christ to live in the freedom of sin and to live out the righteousness of Christ. Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. The glory of the gospel that we get to express in our lives today is freedom from the law, which is a curse which leads to death. Freedom from the demands to please God solely through our adherence to his rules and to his law. And freedom from the demand to behave in order to be saved. Rules and prohibitions offer nothing to the development and the maturity of our new nature in Christ. Children learn prohibitions at young age, what they can and can't do because they cannot reason. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 11, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. When your toddler gets older, they grow in their ability to reason and we no longer simply impose rules, but we explain rules and we give them reason for the rules. As believers in Christ, we are growing out of immaturity and into the fullness of Christ's maturity. That's Ephesians chapter 4. And that includes understanding concerning the meaning and the reason and the depths of the gospel. What it is, how it works, what it means, what it produces throughout our life and throughout our sanctification. I talked about this in our life group on Friday night. There's the gospel that saves and then there's a depth to the gospel that you can learn about as you mature in Christ. There are depths to the gospel, levels to the gospel that we may not need to understand in order to be saved, but that we do need to understand in order to be sanctified. An example of that is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. He chose us in him before he created the world. Elected is a word that John uses. He elected, and Jesus, and he elected us and chose us and predestined us before he created the world to be his children. He chose to save us. That is what, the doctrine of election, which we teach here and believe because it's all over scripture. That is a depth to the gospel. That's an understanding about salvation, about the gospel and how you get saved that you don't have to even understand or necessarily know about in order to receive Christ as your savior. But it is a depth of the gospel that once we're saved, we can start to explore. And I understand on that particular issue, people can end up at different places. So I'm not going to dive into that doctrine, but the point is there are depths to discover. 
the gospel itself, which is the most basic and simple truth in all the world. So easy, so simple. Children, small children can believe it. It's not complex. You're a sinner. Jesus is perfect. You get his credit because he died on the cross for sins and rose from the grave. Believe it. Or as Jesus says in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, repent and believe in the gospel. It's that simple. That's simple. And then you get saved. Yay! And that's awesome. And then once you're saved, God starts this process. Once you're justified, he begins this process of sanctification, which is a constant refining of your obedience, your commitment to him, your slavery to him, your submission to his lordship. He's always working on that in us. And part of that is understanding more, more depth, more realities, more concepts, deeper understanding of the nature and characteristics of God and how he reveals that character and that nature through his gospel and through his word and through us and in our lives And we start to reformulate and reshape our understanding of who God is and what he's like and how he behaves. And as we begin to get a deeper and greater understanding of who he is, what he's like, how he behaves, how he thinks and how we should think and who Christ is and who Christ is in us and who the Holy Spirit is and how he fills us and indwells us and empowers us and what we can and can't do and who we are because of him. As we begin to understand all those things, it starts to change the way that you live. Right? Shouldn't it? If it's not, I don't know if you've met the same God that I know. Because you can't meet him, discover more about him, and go, eh, he's all right. You haven't met the God, the one and only. Because if you have, and if you dive deeper, and dig a little deeper, and find a little more, you're going to see more glory, more beauty, more power, more magnificence, more joy. You'll be more satisfied. This is our entire life. And we've been talking about obedience a lot because Scripture is filled with the command to obey. And it is the product of faith in Christ. We will obey. Jesus said, prove to be my disciples. He said, if you abide in my word, that's how I know you're truly my disciple. If we hold fast, if we hold firm to the faith, hold firm to to faith till the end, that's how we know we're saved. Those conditional statements about obedience are all throughout the Bible. But that obedience doesn't save you. That obedience is the product of Christ saving you. And our objective in this life is to dive into the word of God and discover more of him. The objective is not to dive into the Bible, find as many rules as we can in it, write them down and walk around going, uh, did that obedience, uh, did that one, did that one, did that one, did check mark, okay, I think I was good today. Yeah, God's pleased with me. That's legalism. The objective is to dive into the Bible. Don't worry about the rules. Don't look for rules in the Bible. Look for Jesus. Look for God. As you discover him, he will burst out of these pages with new life for you. Glorious beauty will come out of this book and you'll start to see the nature of God in Christ Jesus as the perfect example of humanity and he will become a greater desire to you, a greater passion for your life. You will, des- you will want him and you will repeat after Jeremiah 15, 16, I found your words, I ate them and they were so good. They were the joy of my heart is what Jeremiah says. 
God will be the joy of your heart. And as he becomes more and more magnificent to you, you don't have to find a checklist of rules to obey because you will want to. And you will fail day in and day out. And God's not, this is what the beauty of grace, God's not looking at you going, oh, you failed there. I thought you were saved. That's not the gospel. The gospel says you failed there. But I see your heart is for me. So in that failure, turn to me and let me take you out of the mire of that sin. Look at David. King David. Look at the things he did. What would you guys do if I committed adultery and then with a woman and then killed her husband? <laughs> do you think you'd fire me? <laughs> I'm thinking you would. <laughs> yeah, you should. <laughs> and, and what does God do with David? Keeps him in place and says, what about him? This is a, God, this is a man after God's own heart. What? what? Because David screwed up. But God didn't say, hey, check mark, you're out, of the, you're out, man. Now, there were consequences for his sin, obviously. But what God did is he looked at David and said, I see a heart of a man. You guys look at the outer, I look at the inner. God said that specifically about David early in his life before he became king. And he's applying that to David again. I see the heart of David. You guys see his actions. I see his heart. And this is a man who loves me. He's not perfect. He failed, but he loves me. And by God's grace, he turned David into something great. And David becomes like this pillar of greatness or like the example or like the type of Christ before Christ comes. And we have something better. We have Christ in us. We have the Holy Spirit in us. So as you dive into the Bible, don't look for the rules. Don't look for the regulations. They're there and you will grow in them through time. But what we look for is God. And when we find God in there, he becomes greater and greater and greater. And that requires reason and logic and knowledge and understanding that we have to grow into so that we can fathom or contemplate or discover the reality of who God is. And when we do, he will bring incredible joy to your heart. Not because he just takes like joy off a platter and sticks it in your heart. Because he takes himself and gives himself to you. And he is joy. Because he satisfies because he is a pleasure. He can be nothing but pleasure to those who are his children. So when we talk about obedience, we are not saying, now that you're saved, live by these rules. What we're saying is, now that you're saved, dive into the Bible, discover the beauty of Jesus Christ, and pursue him and desire him more than anything in your life. Make that the only objective for, for which you live. And when you do, obedience will be the product of the Holy Spirit's work. It won't be perfect today, but that's what he's developing in us, is the perfection of Christ day by day. However, following the rules is good. Because we do have rules that we do have to follow. And I do have the mandatory responsibility to tell you what those rules are, to tell you what God calls right and what he calls wrong. But to do those things, just to do them, is legalism. Obedience 
to garner God's favor or to please God, obedience alone to please God is legalism. So there has to be something that we add to obedience or something that is also involved in obedience that makes it a pleasure to God and makes it true obedience for us that isn't legalism. And that thing that must be included in obedience is faith. Romans 14, 23. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews eleven six. 6. Without faith it is impossible to please him. So to obey God's commands without faith is still sin. It is faith that makes our works true obedience and glorifying to God. And that is what makes the ascetics teacher teaching false. It is rules without faith. And their rules are not even God's rules. They're man-made rules. But, but following the rules looks good, right? How many false converts fill the church chairs across America this morning? Probably way more than we expect. How many people are doing what looks like Christianity but are not genuinely saved? How many people are following all the Christian rules but aren't saved? We have examples of this in Scripture. It's totally fair to say that that's happening all over churches in America. It could be happening right here in this church. Wouldn't surprise me a bit. Because it happened in Scripture. It's happened since. Jesus talked about it in John 6, 60-69. He said that there are people, he was preaching, people said, whoa, 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 Jesus, this is hard to swallow. And he said, does this offend you? And then it says that people turned back and no longer walked with him. Paul talked about this with Demas in 2 Timothy 4, 9-11. through He says that Demas was in love with the world and has deserted us. That happens. Christian and I were talking about this this week, and Christian said, do you think that Paul looked at Demas the whole time and said, I don't trust this guy? He was, Paul wouldn't have let Demas run with them and serve with them and teach with them and preach with them and do all, these, all this ministry with them unless Paul knew or believed that Demas was legit. So even the apostle Paul was probably fooled by Demas, and then Demas is like, I'm out. And Paul's like, I guess he wasn't, ever, he wasn't one of us. There's false converts all over, and we, we can't tell them apart. Why? Why can't we tell them apart? Because they follow the rules. You can follow the rules and not be saved. What does that tell you? What's the missing piece? It's in here. It's in your heart. It's in your mind. It's God. You're missing Christ. You're missing him, the person, not the obedience, not the rules, not the legalism, not the following all the human regulations or even God's regulations. That's not what does it. What they're missing is Christ. So pursuing rules doesn't solve anything. Obedience alone doesn't save. And obedience alone doesn't validate salvation. Obedience as a loving and joyful response in faith to God's grace, that's validation. But faith in someone's heart, that's a lot harder to spot than the outward works that look like obedience. And Paul tells us about this in verse 23. It says in verse 23, Colossians 2, 23, these, these people, have indeed the appearance, or these works, these rules and regulations, these have indeed the appearance of wisdom. So they look good, right? Following these rules and regulations looks like Christianity. It looks wise. It looks beneficial. It looks right. 
It has the appearance that appeals to a Christian who knows that obedience matters. So he says, these have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There is something very appealing to the self-humiliation and severity to the body. Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Now the Greek word for, dis- for discipline, he says, I, but I discipline my body. The, in, in that, that text is in the context of athleticism because he talks about running the race and fighting the good fight and those kinds of things. And so he's talking about what a boxer does. Really, the, Greek, the idea of the Greek word for the word discipline in 1 Corinthians 9.27, what it really means is shadow boxing. Like just, you know, when you're boxing, nobody just moving around, you know, doing this to, to the air. That's what Paul's doing to his body. I shadow box my body. I beat myself up. That's what he's saying. I discipline my body. I beat my body into submission to Christ. Now that sounds a lot like asceticism. Or what Paul says in verse 23, severity to the body. But there's a difference. Paul's is in faith. Severity to the body without faith. Beating your body into submission without faith offers no power to the real struggle against the indulgence of the flesh. That kind of adherence to rules without faith in Christ has no power and has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And that indulgence of the flesh is ultimately what God is after, what he's after to kill. He wants to kill that indulgence, wants to kill that flesh, which he did in Christ and is now working out in you in real life day by day. Our entire life of sanctification is a two-part act. Act one and two work together simultaneously at all the times. Number one, we are destroying sin. Number two, we are becoming righteous. And the only reason we can destroy sin is because sin is already completely destroyed in us through Christ. And the only reason we can become righteous is because we are already perfectly righteous in Christ. All of that is already, but our experience is not yet. So we work out our sanctification, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation, that word means sanctification. Work out your sanctification, fear and trembling, for it is God who wills and works to you for, in you for his good pleasure. God's at work, and we're at work, becoming more like Christ. And the only reason it's possible is because our sin is already dead, and Christ is already perfected in us. Our, our flesh, though, is still here. Galatians 5. Galatians 5, like, I think it's like 17 or so, somewhere around there, right? In that, in that text about uh, the spiritual fruit, uh, uh, fruit of the Spirit, Paul talks about the, I'm just going to read it. <laughs> I'm going to sit here and fumble through the words. Okay, so he says, walk by the Spirit, this is Galatians 5, 16. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then he shows us what's happening inside of you. Verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So what that means is your flesh... So 
These are opposing each other, and they both want to do the things that they want to do. The flesh wants to do sin. The spirit wants to do righteousness. Well, the, the flesh is going to fight the spirit to do sin, and the spirit is going to fight the flesh to do righteousness. That's how we experience life in the flesh as, we, as our flesh seeks to indulge itself, and the spirit of God in us, the spirit of Christ in us, seeks to become righteous in us. It's like a tug of war, but don't get it twisted. That doesn't mean like our flesh is just as powerful as the spirit. God is creating in us Christ-likeness day by day. I think if he just transferred us from our wretchedness today to absolute perfection tomorrow, we might explode. I don't think we could handle it. It would be too much for us. And so he works it out in us throughout our life until we are perfected in glorification in the future. Our flesh wants to indulge, but Christ in us wants to mature into faithful obedience and righteousness and holiness and eventually perfection. Prohibition cannot produce that change. Only Christ can. Only the Spirit can stop the indulgence of our flesh, and he doesn't do it with strictly prohibiting certain behaviors. He does it through faith in Christ. Reliance on Christ, dependence on Christ's righteousness in us. Our obedience is not... Us following rules, our obedience is us finding God to be a great pleasure. And the only reason we can find God to be a great pleasure and joy and amazing is because he has given us the gift of faith by which we can believe that and by which we can, in faith, discover more about him and realize what he's like and how much he hates sin and how he's given us his righteousness and how in Christ we can conquer the sins that are winning in our life. It is only because of his gift of faith given to us, it's Ephesians 2.8, is only because of that gift of faith that obedience glorifies God. And that our desire for righteousness and our hatred for the, for the indulgences of the flesh becomes an honor to God and a joy to us as we destroy that sin. That is the power and the beauty and the majesty of the gospel. That it not only saves us, but it transforms us and changes us and frees us from the burden of having to please God through our behavior apart from the powerful working of the Holy Spirit causing our obedience. And only those who have genuine faith in Christ have the Spirit who is causing and producing spiritual growth alongside our efforts to glorify God. So don't get this wrong. Don't don't think that Paul is teaching us that rules don't matter. That obedience to God's commands don't matter, because they do. Don't think that Paul's saying, see, God's grace and the gospel is so beautiful. Rules don't matter. You're saved by grace. What does it matter if you sin? You're saved by grace, the power of the gospel. Pastor Mark was just saying, obedience doesn't matter. Faith is all that matters by God's grace. So Paul answers that in Romans 6, chapter, chapter 6, verses 1 and 15. Does that mean we can just keep on sinning? By no means, right? So rules do matter. Obedience does matter. But we can only obey in faith. We see this in Ezekiel 36, 27. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to obey and cause you to follow my rules and statutes. That's the new covenant promise. 
that we get the Holy Spirit causing our obedience. And the only way that the Holy Spirit can cause obedience in you is if you have the Holy Spirit. And the only way you can have the Holy Spirit is if you have faith. So from faith, God produces obedience in us. So obedience does matter. But what Paul is teaching is that rules without faith, rules without the gospel, rules without Christ, offer nothing to your sanctification. Now that's in terms of being saved and being sanctified, but there's more to it. The Bible doesn't teach. Obey! That's not the message of the Bible. Obey! The message of the Bible to you Christians today is obey. Because, so notice, there's a command and then a reason, because God's reasonable and logical. Obey because you are no longer a slave to disobedience. And in our joy in Christ, it is our faithful pleasure to sacrificially give up the indulgences of the flesh to live in the freedom that Jesus has purchased for you in his death and resurrection. He sacrificed his life so you could sacrifice your flesh for your joy in him and his glory in you. That is the gospel. Obedience isn't the gospel. Obedience to the gospel is the gospel. Obedience and faithful and joyful submission to Christ is the gospel. Let me ask you this. Think about it this way. Okay, we've been talking about like how, how obedience you know, like doesn't save you, only Christ saves you, and then in Christ you have this sanctifying work, but still even in your sanctification, your obedience doesn't bring, bring pleasure to God. Your obedience in faith brings pleasure to God. Because if it doesn't proceed from faith, Romans 14, 23, then it is sin. So our obedience in faith is what pleases God. So I, I gotta ask you guys some questions, some real practical questions about how you live your life. Why do you serve in ministry at the church? Why do you mow the church lawn? Why do you come to the aid of others? Why do you give other people things that they need when you have something and you fulfill that need for them? Why do you do it? Why do you give money to the church? Why do you do the right thing at the right time? Why do you clean the church? Why do you go to life group? Why do you go to Bible study? Why do you do the things that appear to be good? Why? Why, 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 why? What's your motivation? I, you, the motivation matters. Simply doing those things means nothing if your motivation is not Jesus. If you gave something to somebody that they needed, they didn't have it, they didn't have it but they needed it, and you had it, and you were like, I want to give this to them because I have it and I can fulfill their need. And I said, why are you doing it? And you said, because it's the right thing to do. That's insufficient. That's not a good enough reason. That is legalism. So I would press in, well, why is it the right thing to do? What is your reason for what you do? Why do you participate in ministry at church? Why do you pray for others? Why do you do good things? Why are you, on, why are you serving the church and the worship team? Why are you at church this morning? Why do I preach the gospel? Because if my answer, if I dig really deep into my sin, I'll find something like, it makes me look good and that feels good. And the better my sermon, the better I look and the more glory I get, that's what's really 
waiting in the weeds for me. That selfish self-glorification that my sin nature wants to indulge in, that my flesh wants to indulge in. Why do you do what you do? Because I think a lot of you do a lot of great things for the church. And if I said, why you do you do that? You say, because he's my brother in Christ and I love him. Insufficient. That's an insufficient answer only if it's your primary answer. It's a great answer. It's a Bible answer. Of course that's great. But your answer to why you do what you do has to be Jesus. It has to be Jesus first. Because only in Jesus can you properly love your brother. Only in Jesus can you faithfully give to the needs of others and it be glorious to God. Only through Christ. My wife and I talk about this. Sorry, this is the second time I'm going to talk about adultery today. So... (laughs) We've talked about, you know, in the past, we've been married for 16, almost uh, 15 and a half years, and, you know, we always talk about how we're going to be faithful to each other and whatever. And uh, I asked her many times, like, you know, I didn't really ask, like, just, she kind of, like, assures me, let's put it this way, she assures me that she will always be faithful to me, and I'm like, why? And she's like, well, to be honest... I'm not really comfortable around other men. <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> that's good for me. I, but then I said, well, what happens when you become more comfortable around other men? Like your brothers in Christ who go to church and we build relationships with family. And there are men in your life and in my life who are our family friends with us. And you become friendly and comfortable with other men as you should as their sister in Christ. Then what? She's like, well, I love you the most. I'm like, today? <laughs> I'll give you plenty of reasons not to. <laughs> and she's like, yeah, but you're such a good husband and you're a good man and I love you and I don't want to be with anyone. And I'm like, those are all great reasons and they're reasons that every man wants to hear, but it's not sufficient. And I talked to my wife about this. I'm like, the only reason that matters The only reason that you should ever give me for why you will be faithful to me till the day that we die is Jesus. Because only Jesus is fully and perfectly faithful. Only in Christ. The only reason I ever want my wife to say I will never do that to my husband is because she looks at Jesus and says, God, in Christ, I want to be faithful to you. I don't want her to say, no, I can't. I have to be faithful to my husband first. Wrong. That's not a proper motivation if it's first. The only motivation for her faithfulness to me is that she is faithful to God because God demands her faithfulness to her husband. That's what I want my wife to think. That's her why. That's my why for my wife. Did Jesus adulterate the church, his bride? No, so I can't do that to mine because I want to be like Christ. Jesus is my reason. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you serve in the ministries you serve in? Why do you sacrifice and give and do all these wonderful things and you're kind and faithful? And do, I, got, I see all the great things you guys are doing and, I, and I'm grateful for them, but now we've got to press in a little harder. I see you doing good things. Thumbs up. That's great. Let's press in. Let's grind into that a little bit and say, but why? And your answer has to be because I want to be faithful to Jesus Christ. Because of the gospel, that's why. And then what does the gospel do for you there? It makes me love my brother, so I give to him. 
It makes me love, Jesus makes me love the church, so I mow its lawn. Jesus makes me love his word, so I go to Bible study and I invest in others. He has to be your why. Because without Jesus as your motivator, your actions lack faith and they lack reliance and they lack dependence on Christ and you are depending on something other than him and that is sin because it lacks faith. And our flesh loves to indulge in the self-promotion that we gain when we do what is right. So it's very easy for us to be motivated wrongly but look like we're good. And that is a very difficult and challenging line to toe in the Christian life, which means every day we ought to be on our knees with our heads down in full submission and total humility before God our Father, communing with him and expressing to him, if you leave me to my flesh today, God, I will do everything right and I will do it all in sin. Because I know how to act right in front of others, but I can't produce that obedience out of faith without your Holy Spirit consuming me. So our daily communion with God ought to be absolutely on the floor, head on the ground, tears running down our face. Okay, it doesn't have to be like that every time, but really giving ourselves to God and, and, and saying to him that without him being our motivator and our reason, all of our good behavior today will be counted as nothing. But recognizing that in Christ, because of who he is in us, we can and will act and behave in obedience and we can and will produce righteousness. That is what you have in you. As Paul said in Galatians 5.1, don't go back to slavery. Don't go back to the law. Don't go back to rules. Don't go to the Bible looking for rules. Open the word and look for Christ. Let's pray. It is only by your grace, God, only by your grace, by your power, by your working, by your spirit, that we can even come to you in prayer, that we can come to you together, to meet together, to serve you, to learn about you, to be in your word, to worship, to sing to you. It's only by you. And in our hearts, we ask that it is for you. That you transform our motivations to be for Jesus, for his glory, for our desire in him, for the joy that he gives Help us to check our motivations daily. Consume us with your spirit. Engulf us with your love. Overflow us with your joy. And let it pour out in praise. And let it pour out in obedience that is filled with faith and confidence in Christ. And let us live a life that brings you honor and glory as you satisfy us in your Son. This Christian life is hard, God. It is hard. And you know it better than anybody, Lord Jesus. You know it better than we do. But you are faithful to the end without any sin. So if we're going to do any of that or look anything like that, we need you. 
We need you. We need you. Meet us here. In Jesus' name, amen.